This program is a part of the Full Press Radio Network. Find this and all of Full Press Coverage's shows on fullpressradio.com or free on the Full Press Coverage app, available now on the Apple and Google Play stores. This is Willie Anderson, and you're listening to the iTest for Two. If you're looking for the ITF for two, good news. Found us. I'm Clark Judge. I'm Ira Kaufman. And we're Hall of Fame voters joined today as we are each week by our Hall of Fame producer, Ian Glendon. Now, should know this, but Ian and I both live in the Tampa area. So this may not come as news to you in the Tampa area, but it should everyone everywhere else. When Tom Brady last week was asked to describe his relationship with former coach Bruce Arians, yep, <laughs> that was our Ira Kaufman who had him in the dentist chair. Ira, congratulations. You asked him what others should, but eh, they didn't. Yeah, Clark, I mean, I got to give you a little credit because I asked you for a little advice how to frame the question. And Clark, as long as I've been doing this, 46 years, there's still ways to ask a question where you can get a better answer than right. others and if you don't come off confrontational you're probably going to get a better answer and you gave me some good advice about clearing the air so that's the way i posed it look he was unequivocal on the arians question and clark i followed up 10 minutes later about joining the miami dolphins in some capacity yeah he never he never denied it clark he never denied it yeah so that, and, gives, that gives that report some more legs i, I was going to ask Ask you after after you've heard from him and, and you listen to him, you saw him. How would you characterize the relationship? And and do you believe that Miami uh, rumor was real? I, I do believe the Miami rumor. Um, I tend to think he was going to retire and uh, be a part owner because Clark. Uh, there would have had to have been a vote among owners. Can you play and be a part owner? I think they would have needed twenty four. Affirmative votes. He, he would not have gotten them, Clark. Yeah, I don't right. think there's any way he gets those votes. So I think that would have been the end of Brady's career. I think he would have done it to become a part owner and start the next phase of his uh, of his uh, career. Oh, and, and last question: Do you think Arians' exit and Brady's unretirement are related? It is a mystery, Clark. The way it happened with Arians coming to the NFL owners' meetings and then he leaves after a day and then he announces the next day. Clark, I, uh, I, I don't believe that Tom Brady went to the Glazers and said, it's me or Bruce Arians. Right. I don't believe that ever happened. Right. Okay. Well, speaking of quarterbacks, we have one with us today, Ira. In fact, it's one who is and should be, as you know, as a member of the senior subcommittee on the Hall of Fame radar. He was a two-time All-Pro, four-time Pro Bowler, league MVP, league Offensive Player of the Year, league comeback player of the year, four-time passing Raiders leader, three-time completion percentage leader, two-time passing yards leader, and also a two-time Hall of Fame finalist. I'm talking, of course, a former Cincinnati quarterback, Ken Anderson, who joins us today from his home. In Ken, where are you, where are you calling from? In uh, Cincinnati, 
calling from? Oh, I'm here full time. Oh, now. Hilton Head. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you enjoying the sun down there. Well, anyway. After the freezer bowl, when it was 59 below <laughs> with the wind chill, I don't ever want to be cold again. I remember those. I knew I covered the Fort, the Chargers, not in those days, but a little bit later. Those guys still had not thawed out from that game. <laughs> well, oh, Dan Fouts and I talk about it, you know, and if the weather drops below 50 and we don't have gloves on our hand, our fingers turn white. <laughs> That's hey, what happens to Ira and I when we're typing. We don't have a lead. <laughs> Clark, Clark I, I found something out about Ken Anderson today and doing a little research that I didn't know. Kenny, tell me if this is true or not. I mean, it sounds crazy, but uh, did you grow up playing basketball in a backyard against Dan Issel? Is that yeah, true? He, yeah, he and I, are, their backyards uh, adjoined, and he was a year older than I was, but uh, we played basketball uh all through junior high and, and high school together and have still remained, uh, remained good friends. I got to tell you, Ken, I think Issel is one of the more underrated players of his time. ABA, NBA, the, the, the guy was a great player, Ken. Oh, no, I, I used to always kid him. I said, Dan, you got one move. Luckily, he was the first kind of big guy that had a, an outside shot, and then he had a pump fake and drive. And I said, you got one move. He said, yeah, if they ever figured out, I'm dead. <laughs> Ken, I'm going to bring you back, Ken, to uh, I think it was 1975. You've been in the league uh, about four years. Ken, and, and I want to get your take on this because it was a very uh, memorable moment in NFL history, and it happened right before your eyes. Ken, the great Paul Brown decided to hang it up. Ken, in seven, after 75, I think after the team was eliminated from postseason, and Ken, on the staff was the great Bill Walsh, and I believe he was your personal quarterbacks coach at the time, Ken, and a loyal assistant to Paul Brown. Ken, he didn't get the job, and it, it absolutely crushed Bill Walsh, and then he left and went elsewhere and, you know, of course, emerged as a Hall of Famer. Ken, what, what the heck happened at that time, and, and how shocked were you? Well, we, you know, we had a great coaching staff, and the guy that ultimately got the job was Bill Johnson. You know, he was our offensive line coach, and he was a, a great center for the San Francisco 49ers. He was on the all-decade team, uh, you know, a great player and, and a long-time great coach. And, uh, and I will say this, you know, I, I thought at that moment in time that Bill Johnson was more ready to be a head coach than Bill Walsh was. Now, it's easy to look back after the fact and say, well, yeah, Bill went there, you know, then he went to Stanford, you know, won three Super Bowls with the San Francisco 49ers and looking back, but, you know, and I think we all wish, you know, maybe things would have been different, but I, I really believe at that moment in time that, that, that Paul Brown picked the right guy. Ken, you're, uh, we got the list today of, of candidates uh, for the seniors. Uh, they did it alphabetically. Ken, you're number two to Alan Amici. You're right behind <laughs> Alan Amici. Uh, and, Ken, I'm going to ask you about a, another guy that you know so well on, on the list because you're too humble to talk about uh, your own incredible accomplishments. But, Ken, we talk, uh, we talk about Ken Riley all the time on this podcast. It's a Hall of Fame podcast, Ken. Some people bring up that Lamar Parrish was getting the, the, the Pro Bowl votes and, and Ken Riley wasn't. But we counter that with his incredible 65 interceptions. I mean, you can't argue against it. Ken, what kind of teammate, what kind of player was Ken Riley? Okay, number one, he was a great player. 
Number two, he was a great teammate. And, and you talk to guys like Isaac Curtis and, and you talk to guys like Chris Collinsworth, you know, who would go against him in practice. And then after the play was over, he would coach them up on what he saw that they were tipping off. And he was trying to, he was all about team, trying to make the team better. And, you know, when you talk about 65 interceptions, what is that fourth all time in yeah, NFL fifth, history? Fifth, yeah. Playing in an era. And I, I think if you look back, uh, you know, at least when I came to the league in 71, you're only playing 14 games a year um, until when was it? Uh, in the late 70s when they changed the pass blocking rules, offensive linemen had to keep their hands within the framework of your body. So quarterbacks only threw the ball 18 times a game. And that, that was the year that he played in. And to come up with 65 interceptions, you know, is just remarkable. If, if anybody deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, it's Kenny Riley. Ken, and, and we're speaking with Ken Anderson on the eye test for two. Ken, how do you explain, though, that it, it's sort of the elephant in the room with Ken Riley? It always comes up, and Ira knows because he's on the senior subcommittee. Lamar Parrish had eight Pro Bowls. Ken Riley had none. I mean, how, how do you explain that? And that has caused some of the voters to go, I, I, I don't know if I'm on board with this guy or that guy. And it's, I think it's hurt his candidacy. Well, you, I think you're right. But, you know... Lamar was the flashy guy. He was the outspoken guy. You know, he was the one with the flashy car and, and wearing the fur coats and that kind of stuff. And then the other thing that helped, you know, and Lamar was a great player too, don't get me wrong, yeah. but he was a, an outstanding punt returner. And if you go back to our team in those days, we had, you know, a, a tandem punt returner of Lamar and Tommy Casanova. And we were deadly in, in punt returns. And I, I think that kind of helped his cause. But, you know, uh, like I say, I, I think Lamar got a lot of notoriety because uh, he, he was the flashy one. I mentioned earlier that you were a two-time finalist for the Hall, and you were. And now you're in the uh, senior, as we call it, abyss. There's so many Hall of Fame-worthy <laughs> players that, that are just waiting to be called. But um, there's been a move lately, and you know about it, what Jim Porter did, and, and he's sort of – engineered this move from the hall to expand from one senior finalist to three per year for the next three years. But he told us, Oh, about a month ago um, that he's not holding it at three years. It could be six years. And he wants to get every hall of fame worthy player out there to be spoken to and spoken about. And he said, if it takes three, six, 10, I don't care what it is. So I guess my question is to you, how encouraged are you that they've opened this up? To more seniors and and then secondly how meaningful to you is or would be the pro football of fame well i, I think it, it, it's exciting that they've expanded because as you said clark there's there's so many worthy candidates uh that that deserve to be in the hall of fame and and i i think from the the senior standpoint that you know we played a long time ago and statistics aren't as gaudy when we played as they are now. And, well, geez, what, what do you mean he, he only threw for, you know, mostly threw for us 3,700 yards in a year? Well, you know, when I first came in the league, 2,200 yards may have led it. You know, you threw 15 yeah, touchdowns, right. you may have led the league in touchdown passes. It was a totally different game then. Uh, from the quarterback standpoint, you could hit quarterbacks in the head, the knees, as long as it wasn't late. We were kind of fair game back then it was a, a totally different football game than it is now uh, and I'm proud I played in that era but I, I think you know there there are so many 
you know, worthy candidates that I, I'm glad to see this. And, and you know, and, and like I say, I think you have to look farther than statistics when you look at these players. Um, as far as what it would mean to me, and, you know, it, it would be great. It, you know, I mean, when you go to Batavia High School, uh, you know, my graduating class was 125, and you go to Division Three Augustana College where we had 2,500 students, you know, your goal in life is not to play in the Hall of Fame. But I, I was lucky, and, I, you know, the, the year I was drafted, 1971, was the, the first year of the quarterback. And if you remember, Jim Plunkett was number one, and you had Archie Manning, and you had um, Dan Pastorini, and then in the third round was Lynn Dickey. I went in the third round, and then uh, Joe Theismann went after that. Scott Hunter from Alabama went to Green Bay. It was a, a great class, and, and, and I remember they did an article in, in Sports Illustrated uh, several years ago and talking about then the year of the quarterback when uh, I think it was Mahomes and Trubisky, that era came out. And they were talking about it, and, and, and uh, Jim Plunkett said, you know, of all of us, Kenny was the lucky one. He got to go to Cincinnati, and Paul Brown was the coach. It was a stable franchise, and, you know, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. You know, Jim, an outstanding quarterback, number one draft goes to New England, and not a lot of success. Goes to San Francisco, not a lot of success. Gets to Oakland, and they've got some a supporting cast, and he wins a Super Bowl. You know, Archie Manning. I mean, God, is there more athletic quarterback that ever played was in New Orleans and he never had a winning team. Right. That's right. You know, so, I mean, you go that and, uh, you know, Dan Pastorini, well, you know, how about this? You know, Houston uh, drafted Pastorini number one and then Lynn Dickey number three drafted two quarterbacks. You're trying to find one. So, <laughs> you know, it, a lot of it is, is the circumstances that you go to and, uh, you know, like I say, it was Cincinnati was a town that that fit me, fit my personality. I I would have been swallowed up in a in a big city. Although as a, a Chicago kid, I would have loved to have gone and, and played for the Bears. You know, that was my team growing up. And you know, Billy Wade was my first quarterback, and then Rudy Bukic. But you talk about a cannon. That was Rudy Bukic. My my first autograph was Harlan Hill. You know, a wide receiver. Great and, wide receiver. Great and uh, wide receiver. I, I remember I was a young kid, and after the game, you know, we're walking out, and there was kind of the players parking lot. I'm out because there's Harlan Hill. Go get his autograph. And I was too timid. And I always remembered he's the one that came up to me. Said, Would you like my autograph? Oh. And that 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 always made an impression to me and how I want to act around kids and people that want your autograph. I'm glad you mentioned that because as a kid, I I did the same thing as you. I would seek out pro tennis players, pro football players, baseball players, and I got a box full of autographs. But I'd write to them. I used to draw pictures. I was an art minor in college. And I'd draw pictures of these guys, and I'd send self-addressed stamp envelopes. And I always got them back because my sister said, if you sell, send self-addressed stamped envelopes, these guys probably will send them back. Rudy Bukic was one of the first guys that I got, and I love that autograph, and I still have it here. But I've got also one of Unitas up here on the wall when he was put, when his practicing at Westminster yeah. College back in the late 50s. And, and so those things are prized possessions. But I once talked to Steve Young about that, about you don't know the impact you have on kids. And he said, I, I, I do. And I try to handle that as well as I can. But it's a different game today than when you were a kid. He said, when you were a kid, you were taking that autograph and framing it or putting it on your wall or something like that. He goes, these guys are selling them today. So I, he said, the way I get around that is I always ask them for their name. And I'll put the name on there so they can't sell it. Anyway, you know, you, um, you talk about that old Bears team. 
I mean, is Gail Sayers the best you ever saw? Oh, wow. Is the best that I ever saw in person. You know, that six touchdowns against the 49ers in the mud. You know, That's right. passing, receiving, returning. So, I mean, that was, you know, me growing up. And, you know, one of my special moments was my uncle. I'm in, you know, junior high. And we go to a Bears-Packers game. And we're sitting uh, between a row of drunks from Chicago and drunks from Green Bay behind us. It was one of the best days I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Kenny, you you've uh, you played for your share of uh, head coaches, Ken. I want to ask you about two in particular. Uh, Ken, Paul Brown was there when you, you broke in as a pro. Bill Belichick says everything coaches are doing today comes from Paul Brown. Everything. And then you also played for Forrest Gregg, Ken, who Bill, uh, who Vince Lombardi said was the best player he ever coached. Forrest Gregg. Um, can contrast the styles of, of Paul Brown and, and, and Forrest Gregg uh, as a head coach. Well, you know, Paul was older when I played for him. He was in his late 60s, I believe. I, I wish I could have played for him when he was a younger coach, more involved in the game planning, you know, that like he was in, in, in Cleveland or, or, or calling the plays. But the one thing I, I, I learned from Paul is he hired great assistant coaches and let them coach. Um, you know, he was a, a great talent evaluator. Uh, you know, he knew guys that had potential. Uh, I think maybe one of his keys, he knew his guys knew when guys were nearly at the end and it was time to, to move on. But, uh, you know, I remember, you know, one time, uh, probably what set the Bengals franchise back, uh, you know, 10 years was before I got there was third and long. He called a draw play to Jess Phillips and went for a first down. So from then on, every third and long was a draw play, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and I, and I still remember, you know, uh, you know, the, the call went from Bill Walsh to Tiger Johnson with the headphone on the sideline, Paul would hear it and he would always okay. It. And every once in a while, he would grab the messenger guard and say, tell him to run a draw. I mean, he didn't know what draw was in the game plan, but he knew by, you know, and, and were, we didn't, we didn't have different personnel groups in, in those days. You know, we had a 40 man roster. So you never went three wide outs because you only had three on the, on the team. Uh, you know, so everything, you know, was, was always two wide receivers, a tight end and, and two running backs. And so he kind of knew, you know, I knew what draw was in, was in the game plan, but, but he was, uh, uh, he didn't yell. Uh, in a meeting, but uh, you always went into the, the the meeting the day after a game with a white T-shirt on and a towel around your neck because you didn't want anybody to see your armpits sweating. And, and he would had his legal pad and he would go through the, the you know, and you design Anderson looks like this game's a little too big for you. Might be time to find your life's work. So he, where you know, Forrest was was totally opposite you know he was uh his biggest motivational factor was fear and, you know and he was a, a big guy and, and he came you know to cincinnati in in 1980 and and he's what we needed we were an undisciplined team and we weren't very good the worst team i ever played on in cincinnati was probably 1979 and and he came in and i mean i think it was our third practice we're doing the oklahoma drill you know up there and every day was a, a, a two a day and every day was in pads uh can't do that anymore, but we, we hit and we hit a lot and he, he toughened us up and, uh, you know, but, uh, like I say, I, I think, you know, in the course of the next year, you know, I, I think our offensive success, a lot of it was, was due to, uh, Lindy Infante was our offensive coordinator. who was a genius. 
I mean, he, we did a lot of the option routes before the option routes became, you know, uh, in vogue. We did a lot of the quarterback misdirection, the, the nakeds, keepers, whatever you want to call it. I mean, my God, in 1981, I was our second leading rusher uh, behind Pete Johnson. So, uh, you know, it was just, you know, kind of two totally different styles. But, you know, it, it's and, and I think that's why, you know, Forrest left after four years. He had a chance to go to Green Bay. And, and I, I think, you know, after a certain period of time, fear, you know, doesn't motivate the players anymore. Ken, um, I want to ask you about another teammate. Uh, Special uh, to your heart. You know, Ken, we talk about Cliff Branch. He's the burner. He opens up and scares the daylights out of at, at defensive backs. Ken, you played with Isaac Kurtz. And, you know, you, you were a running team uh, for part of that time. Ken, the guy is averaging 16, 17, 18 yards a catch. He, he's not catching little seven yarders. Um. Some people told me that Isaac Curtis is one of the best receivers of his time. How do you view him? Well, you know, if you remember, Isaac Curtis made the same impact on the league that Jerry Rice did years later. I mean, he came in and what he had 10 touchdown passes, something like that, his first year. Um, I was talking about Isaac, that he was a football player with world class speed. I mean, they wanted him to try out for the Olympic. Uh, relay team and, and he was not going to let that you know get in the way of, of football but Isaac was a fast guy that could stop could change directions you know had moves running patterns had outstanding hands um always had another gear could not overthrow him you know willing to go across the middle um the, the you know a quiet guy a leader a confident guy and my gosh, you know, you talk about guys, I, I think he's as, as good as any receiver I've seen. You know, uh, you know, he's the best, in my opinion, still today, uh, the best the Bengals have ever had. Now we'll see what Jamar Chase turns out to be. This guy could be pretty special coming up. But um, Isaac uh, was unbelievable. And the thing that made me upset me most about him is he could wear a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and look dressed to the nines. You know, I wear jeans and a pair of T-shirts. I look like a slob. I mean, he wore clothes better than anybody I've ever seen. That's the only time that you and I have something in common, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> he looks the same way in a pair of T-shirts and jeans. We're speaking with Ken Anderson on the eye test for two. And Ken, um, quick question for you. I mean, until this year, the last time there was a Hall of Fame finalist was 1998. Oh, that was you. That was you from, from talking about the Cincinnati Bengals. Right, right. Um, and so there's only been one real true Bengal in the hall. I'm going to talk about a guy who spent most of his career with Cincinnati and that's Anthony Munoz. So, you know, we've, we've had one Bengals finalist um, since 1998. That was Willie Anderson this year. Now he didn't get in, but I do believe he'll get in at some point, but fans in Cincinnati are all over us and all over Ira because of you and Ken Riley um, complaining. There's a bias against the Bengals. And I'm going to ask you, I mean, you must look at it and go, what's going on here. I mean, how do you explain the lack of Bengals, and, and are you surprised that really there's been just one in over 50 years? Uh, yeah, I guess I am. I mean, I think we have a lot of great players, you know, and, and I go back, you know, I don't want to list them all, but, you know, Bob Trumpy is a tight end as one. Yeah. You know, I describe him, he was Gronkowski before Gronkowski, where you could, you know, split him out, he could run wide receiver routes. I mean, by gosh, you know, if, if, 
you know, if he could block on the end of the line of scrimmage, if he could block Andy Russell and Jack Ham, you can block anybody. And yeah. he was a great run blocker as well. And you, you kind of go through the eras. And I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, it is a small market and, and we didn't play a, a lot of national games. And I, I think our first Monday night game, I, I think was 1975. The first one we had in Cincinnati mm-hmm. was 1975 against Buffalo. And so I, I think a lot of times people didn't see us. Um, I think sometimes the people that, that make the decisions, you, you know, we didn't play, you know, you know, in Washington and New York and Philadelphia a lot. What is it? Once every six or seven years, you go to those markets right. or L.A. or Chicago. I mean, I think I only played the Bears in my career. Uh, only started against them once, and then uh, I won. You know, I played as a backup to Boomer and won in, in 1985. Um, so I, you know, I, I think maybe we didn't have the exposure nationally a, a, as a lot of other teams. But um, you know, I, I go back and, and you know, our division. You know, we happen to have the the Steelers in our division in, in the 70s and 80s, which maybe the best one of the best defenses of all time. And if you look at our record against the Steelers in, in that era we had by far the best record of anybody in the league against them. I think we were almost 50, 50. And the next team was like 30%. So yeah, I, I think mean, you, per, a, I think you personally were like eight and eight against Bradshaw. I think you were. So, yeah. So, I mean, it was, uh, you know, a, a great rivalry. And, and, and in fact, uh, you know, one of my favorite stories is, you know, as I said, in, in 79 was the worst Bengals team I was ever on. And uh, the Steelers come in at uh, seven and zero. We're zero and seven. I think we beat them thirty-four to ten. They didn't cross midfield until the fourth quarter. Uh, oh. Chuck Knoll said after the game, "If I, I didn't know you guys better, I thought you threw the game." <laughs> well, they they they, they kind of got us back uh, later on in the year in in, in, in Pittsburgh. They're they're killing us. And in the fourth quarter, Joe Joe Green sacks me again. He's laying on top of me. He says, "Kenny, why don't you come in the locker room for a beer after the game?" <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounded like a pretty good deal. So I, I, I showered quickly. And, you know, the old Three River Stadiums, the locker rooms was right next to each other. And I walk in and first guy I see is Bradshaw. And he stops doing his interviews. And, you know, I, and we go back to that. They turn off the sauna. I had a garbage can full of beer. And he cleared off a couple seats for us. I have two or three beers. I'm being, feeling better about life. And then I go out to catch the buses to go to the airport. And they've gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, how do I explain that I got fined and had to buy a plane ticket from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati? I'm in the Steelers locker room drinking beer. And so I, I, I'm running, you know, around looking for a cab to go to the airport. And there goes the equipment truck. And I run down and I flag the equipment truck down and, and I ride out there. For some reason, our plane is late. And we pull up to the gate and the guy lets me in the side door of the whole teams standing around and at first i'm upset i said starting quarterback's not there and they don't know then i started thinking maybe they know they just don't care (laughs) (laughs) can you imagine if that happened today ken it'd be the lead item on sports center oh dissected every which way it's unbelievable hey uh, speaking of that you know you talk about lack of exposure in 81 you certainly had it you had the exposure right you mentioned you were the player of the year uh the mvp you go to the super bowl but you didn't win it, and you could have. You could. That was a heck of a game against San Francisco. Had you won that game, do you think you'd be in the Hall of Fame now? Because there are only eight quarterbacks in the Hall without a title. Dan Fouts is one of them, but there are only eight. You mentioned earlier, but only eight without a title. If you had won that game, do you think your chances would have been certainly enhanced and that you might be in the Hall now? I, I think my chances would have been better. 
you know, and, and, you know, it was just, it's disappointing that we know you don't go in and, and win a game with, with five turnovers. And, yeah. and we, we had, you know, we had those. And, and in fact, the, the first one was mine, you know, uh, we kicked off and they mishandled the kickoff. We got the ball in great field position and we get a first down and we've got a third down inside the five. And we had a little outside pick for Isaac Curtis to come underneath. And I throw an interception to Dwight Hicks. And they end up going down and scoring the first touchdown of the game. And, you know, percentages say the first score wins. And, you know, that bothered me for a long time. And then years later, I saw Dwight Hicks at a, at a celebrity golf tournament. So I'm surprised you're talking to me. So I forgot about that interception a long time ago. I only think about it every other day. Um, he said, I got to tell you, Kenny, he said, I blew the coverage. He said, I, I didn't go with my wide receiver. I stayed there. I shouldn't have been there when you threw the ball to Isaac. So that was a little, a little consolation on that. But. You know, I, I think it would have, uh, you know, would have, it would have helped the cause. Yeah. Ken, one more for me. Thanks so much for your time, Kenny. Uh, travel safe tomorrow. Uh, Ken, back in the day, and you know I'm right about this. I mean, if, if a QB completed 51% of his passes, Ken, uh, you know, the guy's going to the Pro Bowl uh, in, in 1971, 72. You come along and then – Ken, you got that year with 70%. I, I, I believe it. It stood for 30 years. I mean, three decades. Quarterbacks came and went. Nobody could match it. And here came, came Drew Brees, who uh, was incredibly accurate. Uh, Ken, is that, uh, is that something you take tremendous pride in? Uh, how accurate were you in college? Uh, was, was that always your forte? Well, I, I think I always could throw well. And, and I think a lot goes back to the – the fundamentals that Bill Walsh taught me, you know, the footwork and the timing. And, and back then, you know, we were one of the first teams where the, the depth of the quarterbacks dropped, timed out to the route the receiver was running. And, you know, we, we had a progression that we went through. We used the whole field, not only vertically, but, you know, horizontally. And we weren't going to throw interceptions. I got a one, a two, a three, and an outlet that I could go to. So we were going to have high completions and low interceptions. And, you know, people called it a, a dick and dunk offense, but as you talked about, Isaac Curtis had, had a pretty good average, uh, you know, there. And I, th I think for my career, my average was 8.6 for a temp, which is just about the same as Dan Marino. And I don't think Dan Marino would classify as a dick and dunk quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, it was, um, no, it, it, but, uh, you know, Steve Young once, once made the comment that if you film me from the waist down, I can tell you if I played well from the balance that I have when I'm throwing the football. And like I said, a lot goes back to the, the training I had from Bill Walsh on that. Were you, were you accurate in college too, Kenny? Well, you, you know, I was a little option rollout quarterback kind of thing. And it was, you know, just a little bit over 50%. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, like I say, at Augustana when, when Paul Brown said, I think that some of the high schools in Cincinnati could have beat their team. The level of competition was, wasn't really good. Um, <laughs> So, you know, but, uh, but like I say, I, you know, I go back to, to uh, Sonny Jurgensen, you know, Sonny could throw his arm at any angle. The ball's going to go from here to there. He knows where it's going to go. And, and I, I think, you know, you're either accurate or you're not, you know, you can throw the football from here to there under a lot of different circumstances or you can't. And that's when I was coaching and, and I would, you know, look for quarterbacks, you know, you kind of look for that natural accuracy because that's, you can improve it a little bit, but you can't make it a whole lot better. 
Ken, you know, it's funny you mentioned Steve Young. 1994 was the first year I covered the 49ers. I moved up from the Chargers, where I've been covering Fouts and Eric Corio for 10 years. And that was Steve Young, 49ers. Um, they go to the Super Bowl that year. And, of course, you know what happened to beat the Chargers. But early in the season, they were playing the Rams. And I think they were up by three, four points, something like that. Late in the game, they have the ball. And there's like a minute to go. The Rams have no timeouts left. It's about a third and three. And I figure, okay, here's what they do. They run the ball in the middle, the, the, the line. And they run the clock and, and the Rams don't come back to win. And instead, Young throws a pass to Brent Jones. They get a first down. So being my first year there, I go in the locker room. We'll seek out Steve Young. I go, hey, let me want to ask about that call. I mean, you know, third and three or four, and, and they don't have any timeouts. You throw the pass. And, and I know, you know, three things can happen, two of which aren't in any good. So wasn't that a risk? He goes, you haven't been around here very long, have you? And I said, well, no, it's my first year. He goes, that pass is safer than a handoff for us. That is basically a long handoff. That's the safest play. And as I watched that year and got to be around the 49ers the next six, I realized he was a lot smarter than I was. And so was Bill Walsh. I mean, the, that, that philosophy, George Seifert was coaching the team then, but that philosophy seemed to really work then. And it worked very well because Steve had a high percentage uh, completion. But, but talking about that, that, that really made a, an impact on me. Well, that goes back to reminds me of 1973. I think we're playing Baltimore in Baltimore. And, and we had uh, a slim lead and they had called their last time out and we got a third down. And I said, well, they're going to come after. So I went over and I told Paul Brown, I said, wait, we got Isaac Curtis out there, run a go pattern. And we threw a go for a touchdown to ice the wow. game. Wow. Um, I've, I've got maybe a couple of last ones here. Um, first one, it should be an easy one for you. And in addition to being an outstanding quarterback, of course, you're a broadcaster and an assistant coach. So which is the hardest chore? Calling a game, coaching a game, or playing the game? Well, I think playing it's harder. You know, from a coaching standpoint, I tell you, I love Monday and Tuesdays, you know, at the beginning of the week when you're formulating the game plan, you're looking at the film, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to come up with how you're going to attack a defense. And I, I love the, you know, the, the part of, of getting ready, you know, getting your players ready, the quarterback ready to play on Sunday. And then once Sunday comes, it's almost like I got no control over it. You know, it, it's all them out on, on the field. So, you know, Certainly Sundays were a lot more exciting, um, you know, when, when you're playing than when you were coaching. And, you know, broadcasting, I, I did that for, for six years and realized I may not have been that good at it. <clears throat> and I always wanted to coach. I mean, I went to, to Augustana. I wanted to be a high school math teacher and football and basketball coach. So coaching was always in, in my blood. And finally, I just said, you know, I was working for a TV station. I was a sports anchor. And I finally went to the, the the news director and I had a chance to do some other stuff. And he said, no, this is your last year anyway. So then I started no. looking for a coaching job. <laughs> okay. And then the last one for me, as I mentioned, I covered the Chargers and covered them when Eric Corio was kind of in descent, not quite in full flight. It was the mid eighties and then the, the, the late eighties and Don was relieved in 1986 midseason. Al Saunders took over, but um, I'm on the coaches contributor subcommittee and Don Coriel will certainly be among those talked about. He's been a finalist. And I think I think he's a six time finalist for us, but five times as a modern era finalist. Can you tell me from the other side of the field, watching Don Coriel's offense, watching Dan Fouts, Kellen Winslow, Wes, um, JJ, and, and that offense, Chuck uh, Munson, those guys, your admiration for it. And, and secondly, what you think about Don Coriel as possibly 
a Hall of Fame worthy candidate because Ken, the flying ointment here is they always go, oh, he's three and six in the playoffs. He didn't go to the Super Bowl. End of conversation. And my point and Dan's point is he contributed so much to the game. He effect sort of changed the way offenses were going. You were talking about one tight end. Kellen, of course, was one of two tight ends. They had right. a blocking tight end with Eric Sievers. But, but then he changed defenses, too, because they had to accommodate them. But anyway, that's a long way of asking you your opinion of Corey on what he did in San Diego. Well, no, I, I think that you hit it on the head it, is that he was an innovator in the game of professional football. And, you know, it's like Bill Walsh coming up with the West Coast offense, which stood the test of time. I, I think – Don Coriel's offense has stood the test of time, and there are elements that are still used in the game today. And, uh, you know, I, I always, you know, kid Dan Fouts, you know, I said, you know, you had Bill Walsh for a year. I said, what the hell is with this back, you know, your backpedaling? And he said, I think I got that from Unitas. He said, you know, my first job backing up Unitas, and I went and I slipped his high tops on one day, and he came over and said, kid, get those off, will you? But he said, I, I kind of learned from him, you know, how to, how to do that drop. And so, you know, uh, you know, and it, 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 to make a system go, I think it, it takes a special quarterback. And, you know, would that have been successful with, with somebody else? I, I don't know. But I know Dan was, was the perfect quarterback for that system and, you know, made it as tough to defend as anything in the league. By the way, you and Don Coriel do have something in common. First game of the season against the L.A. Raiders they left him behind in the locker room. The buses took off down the 110 freeway, and he's going, where are they? They had to turn around and come back and get him. <laughs> anyway, Ken Anderson, thanks so much. It's great talking to you. Um, best of luck to you with the Hall of Fame candidacy, and um, good luck trying to beat Dennis in a game of horse. Well, you know, um, you know I, I'm still, pretty, still a pretty good shooter, you know, and if I take him out far enough, I think I might be able to get a chance. But I'm going to – I'm actually going to see him in about a month. We, we still have a golf outing for our basketball program in, in Batavia every year, and he and I managed to show up for that. But thank you guys for having me, and I hope I get to see you, uh, you know, sometime in person. Yeah, I, I, we look <laughs> hey, Ken, forward you to mentioned, it. Kenny, you mentioned that the Bengals' first home game on Monday night was uh, 75 against uh, the Bills. You know why you got that matchup, Kenny? Because of O.J. Simpson. That was the reason, Ken. You know that. Well, you know, that was, well, of course, it wasn't beat the Cincinnati, but, but that was the, the, the most yardage I ever threw for in a game. You know, and, and you go back to that era that Isaac was there, but also Charlie Joyner was with yeah. the Bengals at that time. One of the but classiest that, guys ever. Charlie. Yeah, and, and, and I think I remember most of that, that Monday is, you know, we kind of shoot. You know, it was O.J. running and me passing, but uh, O.J. broke to the outside and we had a linebacker turned his head and ran to the sideline, not paying any attention to OJ, just hoping they'd cut him back to the inside that he wouldn't get to the outside. So uh, that was uh, was a, a memorable game for me. Ken Anderson, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much. Really a pleasure. Thanks, guys. You got it. That was former Cincinnati quarterback Ken Anderson. Our, one of the great interviews, and I love that story of the Steelers going over for a beer with the Steelers. Where's the bus? And they're gone. Uh, can you imagine if that happened today? Leaving the quarterback behind. Oh, my Clark, God. It, it would be talked about for a week, right, until the next weekend. It would be dissected. Oh, man. Anyway. Wait, hey, Ira, I thought I heard, I thought I heard something. Uh, I'm somewhere, Clark. I'm somewhere. And, you know, oh, there they are. There they are. Oh, my God. I knew I heard them. And and the point that you are, you were somewhere. Where were you and when were you? Clark, in, in honor of our special guest today, I was in Cincinnati.
January 3rd, 1982. So it was the 81 uh, Bengals championship run to the Super Bowl. Yep. First playoff game. Uh, they're playing first round. They're playing Buffalo uh, with Joe Ferguson. Clark, the Bengals win 28 to 21. It was their first playoff win as a franchise. Wow. First playoff win. Now, Clark, just a couple of details. Couple. Winning touchdown early fourth quarter. Snap the tie. Ken Anderson to a rookie wide receiver called Chris Collinsworth. I've heard of him. Yeah. Snap the tie. And here's the here's the crazy part. The Bills are driving late in the game. They're down 28-21, Clark. They've got this three minutes left. They got a fourth and four game on the line. They come out of a timeout. Ferguson completes a pass for the first down. They're at the 16. Wait a minute. There's a flag on the field. Delay of game coming out of a timeout. Wipes out the fourth down, and then they don't make it on the next play, and the Bengals win the game out of a timeout. The clock ran out. The game clock ran out. What was your lead for that story, Ira? <laughs> Can't anybody tell time in Cincinnati? <laughs> <laughs> the, the clock ran out. <laughs> um, okay. Hey, listen, guys. Last week we were doing, I, I think, a, a believe it or don't. And I'm going to try this again. There were, there were some things that caught my eye this week. A couple of sentences, uh, phrases, uh, speeches, whatever. And I want to run by. And Ira, I'll start with you. Bruce Smith, Bruce Smith this week, man, it left me shaking my head on new Hall of Famer Tony Baselli. Here's his quote, resorting to underhanded tactics like targeting the Hall of Famer, meaning himself, Bruce Smith, and highlighting a one game matchup to bolster a nominee's merit, as some of Tony's supporters have done, undermines the integrity of the Hall's election process, unquote. Now, Ira, I want to ask you what you think of that, because essentially, he was kind of saying Tony Baselli's not worthy of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Clark, I, I think this is a shocker, and I'll tell you why. Look, mu much was made of that matchup between Baselli and Bruce Smith. Uh, of course, Baselli's candidacy goes way beyond way one beyond. game. He took on all commerce, and he was the best at his time, at his position. But, Clark, here's what I mean about Bruce Smith. He should take it as a tremendous compliment that that game in particular was brought up by the Baselli people to show just how good Baselli was because Bruce Smith was that good. Yeah. So Bruce Smith is looking at it totally in the wrong way. And believe me, Clark, I don't want to speak for you. Baselli's greatness goes far beyond one game against Bruce Smith. Absolutely. Ian? Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it any better. I mean, I, I, I heard that and I'm thinking, well, no, it's I, it's the exact opposite. It's like, how do you prove that someone's Hall of Fame worthy? Well, you you show them up against someone who is a Hall of Famer and someone who has the uh, accolades like like Bruce Smith does. So yeah, I, I I agree with everything Ira said. I I thought it was the exact opposite of what Bruce Smith said. Okay, let's move on to professional lacrosse. Ian, this is right in your ballpark. Professional lacrosse league co-founder Paul Rabble, Rabil. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Says New England coach Bill Belichick, whom you are fond of and you're fond of his franchise, after he leaves the Patriots, he's interested in coaching pro lacrosse. Do you believe it or don't? Uh, 
Look, I mean, I mean, when is he going to stop coaching the Patriots? I don't know. Um, I feel like this is a guy who, you know, at one time said he doesn't plan on coaching into his 70s, but clearly I, I think he's adjusted that. Um, I think it's a nice little comment, and I know uh, 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 Bill Belichick loves lacrosse. He loves the sport. Um, he loves football a little bit too much. I don't think he's ever going to walk away from football to go coach lacrosse. Yeah, played college across up here at Wesleyan University. In fact, his picture is up on the wall. Ira, what do you think about that? I don't think it's crazy at all, Clark. I don't think it's crazy. Uh, I think he's won 7-10 season. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I think he's won 7-10 season uh, away from walking away from the NFL, especially if he doesn't think this quarterback is the guy to get him back to a Super Bowl. He's pretty good, but he ain't Brady. And... I could see Belichick doing something uh, besides uh, going down to uh, Isla Morada and, uh, and and going uh, going out sailing with uh, Jimmy Johnson. I can see lacrosse for a guy like Belichick. I can see it. Okay. And last one, former Tennessee receiver and now Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver, A.J. Brown, quote, I was the best receiver to play for the Titans franchise. Ira, was he? You ever heard of Ernest Gibbons? Charlie Hennigan, Derek Mason. I'm not going going with the franchise, Clark. Now, you saw Charlie Hennigan in the early I did. Because you you were only 21 back then, Clark. (laughs) Um, He was catching a lot of balls from George Blanda, Clark, in the American Football League. He's a great receiver. But, Clark, as far as the Titans, look, Brown's only played three years. He had a great playoff game last season, um, you know, uh, against Cincinnati. I think he's one of the few Titans that showed up that day, uh, and he was great. Uh, but he's only played three years. Clark, let me give you this little thing about a smooth route runner named Derek Mason, Clark. There was a nine-year span for Derek Mason when he had eight 1,000-yard seasons in a nine-year span. You're not there yet, Mr. Brown. You're not there. Ian? Best receiver to play for the Titans, A.J. Brown, believe it or don't. Uh, I, I can't believe it right now. Again, I, I don't have quite the vast experience uh, of covering or watching these Titans receivers, and I'm kind of shocked that there's only one that was actually playing during my lifetime on this list that we, we compiled. But uh, I, I will I will give Derek Mason a little bit of the edge because uh, I, I do remember fondly his interaction with Bill Belichick on the sideline. I believe this was at the time he was with the Ravens, uh, but I, I don't think Bill's going to cuss out a player that isn't good or isn't talented um, when he's running down the sideline. So I uh, give A.J. Brown some time. You know, it's it's early. I'm, I'm kind of against this quick jump to calling someone the greatest this, the greatest yeah. that. I, I think it's a little uh, overdone nowadays. So uh, let's give it a little bit of time before we do that. Well, full disclosure, Ian, you know where Iris called me out saying I was 21 when Charlie Hennigan was playing. I was actually looking up to my mentor at that time, who was 10 years older, a guy named Ira Kaufman, who was in New York. <laughs> uh, Clark, I will say this. A.J. Brown, he's a heck of a player. Oh, he's a good player. Is he Charlie Hennigan? I don't know, but I agree with Ian. I mean, he's a, he's a heck of a player. Charlie Hennigan was a great receiver. So are these others, but he's right. In your era, in your – listen, if you're the best of your era, it's good enough for me. Anyway – this program is good enough for me. That's going to do it for today. But if you're looking for more I Test or Two podcasts, just go to fullpresscoverage.com, find the podcast icon, and then click on the I Test for Two. Ira, it's so easy. What, you can do it? I can do it? Ian, oh, you can on, do everything. Hold on, Clark. I got one more for you, talking about uh, people getting wrapped up with the modern era players. I know this might sound crazy to our producer. It might. But, Clark, 
Steph Curry is not Jerry West, in my opinion. He's just not. Well, He's not. Clark, Jerry West was better. Yeah, well, I'm big O, Oscar Robertson. But I, I watched a little of that game. I'm not an NBA fan last night. They said you got to watch it. So I watched some of the first half. These guys were launching three-pointers from like 40 feet away. I was like, what? They crossed midcourt and they launched it. I went, what kind of game is this? And, and actually, I turned it off because I thought much of the first half was unwatchable. I really did. Errors, turnovers, missed shots. I went, screw it. I'm not going to watch it. But, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. But, you know, he's a hell of a player. And, and that's a great team. Uh, but Ian, I'm with you. I'm hoping for the Celtics. Um, I'm, but not as I said, I'm, the, I'm not counting out the Celtics. I'm not either, year. but I sort of I'm lukewarm because I don't watch the NBA. That was the first game I've watched all year because somebody, oh, you got to watch these guys. Um, anyway, you got to listen to this podcast, though. <laughs> Forget the NBA. Listen to this podcast because Ira, as I was saying, it's so easy. You just go to fullpresscoverage.com, right? Click on the podcast icon, pull down the eye test for two. And you know what? Cosmo can do it, right? Your dog? Ian makes it so easy. There's no excuse. No excuse. That's why he's a Hall of Fame producer. Otherwise, if you don't want to do that, hey, tune in next week because we'll be here. Thanks so much for listening.